Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We weren't out there to take country. We were out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly changing. What we do there is constantly changing. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He held me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. For today's episode, I spoke with David Sutton. David is an historian at the Australian War Memorial. His area of study is in World War II focusing on competing accounts of the Nazi-Soviet war from the two opposing sides, and how our understanding of that conflict has evolved since the Cold War. I imagine most listeners of this podcast would have grown up with the stories of fighting Rommel in the desert, the Normandy landings on D-Day, and the heroism of the 101st Airborne Paratroopers, the legendary Band of Brothers. But David told me about the larger war on the Eastern Front, and how the writing of history can shape our perceptions so drastically. I'm Alex Lloyd, and I'm speaking today with David Sutton. Thanks for coming on the podcast, David. Uh, no worries. Happy to be here. So, David, we're not just talking about history today, but the writing of history. Your studies are that of meta-analysis and historiography, the studying of the writing of history, or indeed the history of history. Can you explain a bit more what these terms mean? What's the nature of your work? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, you probably hit the nail on the head when you said the history of history there. Basically, what I do is examine the way that history has been recorded and written over time and how the way that histories of certain events have changed as that's been written about. So that involves looking at the arguments that have kind of dominated or perhaps kind of led the way that the story has been told over the decades um, and then trying to explore who the main characters are, why they're writing, what they are writing, what's causing change in history. So I specifically focus on the war in the Eastern Front in the Soviet Union in the Second World War. So you've got a kind of the Cold War having a massive influence on how the war the war's been written about in the West, obviously how Soviet historians are writing about their history, um, you know, because of the Soviet government, and then what's happened in the collapse of the Soviet Union. So we now have access to archives. The Russian authors no longer have to write according to certain, you know, party principles, and how has that affected the way that we understand the history to this day. So let's get to today's topic with all that in mind. In 1941, Nazi Germany does the inevitable and breaks its non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union. So we're going to talk in particular about the march to Moscow and how the diversion to Kiev affected Operation Typhoon. But to give a bit of background for everyone, David, can you bring us up to speed on how the invasion has gone for the Nazis up to this point? Yeah, sure. Um, in short, you could say pretty much amazingly well. <laughs> um, so the invasion began on the 22nd of June, 1941. Uh, about 4 million German and pro-Axis troops pour over the Soviet border from occupied Poland. Army Group North under uh, von Lieb that heads towards Leningrad and ends up encircling that city and basically putting to a siege for uh, just a tick under 900 days. Army Group South under von Rundstedt heads down towards Kiev, Ukraine in general. Basically, they're trying to get those massive food producing areas. Uh, Army Group Center, which is what I generally focus on under von Bock, they're heading, I won't say with the intention of taking Moscow, because Moscow was never actually stipulated as one of the targets of Operation Barbarossa. They're basically heading towards Moscow through Belarus, uh, Minsk, Smolensk, places like that. What they need to do is destroy Soviet forces west of the Dvina and Dnieper rivers, which is quite close to the border. 
It all goes incredibly well. Basically, June's only days into the invasion. They've encircled four whole Soviet armies. By the 9th of July, they've taken uh, over 320,000 Soviet prisoners. In the first 18 days alone, they advance about 600 kilometres. They take over another 300,000 prisoners. They basically wound or kill a bunch more. They take over 5,000 tanks. It's an enormously successful initial invasion. And that continues arguably right up until December 1941, but increasingly more difficult for the Germans. Now, David, I, like many others, was taught at school that Hitler was making major tactical bungles and the Germans lost Moscow due to the delay by taking Kiev first. Can you talk me through the traditional Western view here? Yeah, sure. So basically, late July, Army Group Centre, as uh, as we just heard, has been going very well. Um, They're pushing forward. And then the German High Command basically needs to make a decision about what they want to do. The traditional Western view is that against the better advice of his generals, Hitler decided to pause Army Group Centre and divert certain parts of his troops. Uh, Hoth would go up north to assist Army Group North. Famously, Guderian would head south to assist in the taking of Kiev. The actual taking of Kiev and the Soviet soldiers encircled there was enormously, again, successful. Over 650,000 Soviet POWs taken, the capital of Ukraine taken. Hitler actually called it the greatest battle in the history of the world. The argument or the traditional view is that despite it being successful, it was an inexplicable and fateful delay on the march towards Moscow. Hitler delayed the assault on Moscow, and in doing that, even though he took Kiev, it meant that when Army Group Center then began its march on Moscow again, it got stuck in the mud, then it got stuck in the cold, and therefore Moscow was not taken, arguably costing him the entire campaign. So did Hitler make that declaration before the mishap of getting to Moscow or after? Hitler claimed, as it was clear that they weren't going to get Moscow, that it was essentially the mud and the snow that had cost them the war, not his decision-making. So, yeah, that does tie with how Germans recorded events at the time. They did well, Hitler wasted time, then it got cold. That's pretty much it, yeah. Um, It's a really nice and convenient way of explaining how the war was fought and won or fought and lost, depending on, you know, what perspective you're coming from. One of the ways that I tried to frame this event is to either argue that it was a German defeat or a red victory. Slightly different terminology, but the traditional Western view that I just outlined, the German view, if you like, it kind of denies Soviet agency in bringing about their own victory. It is a victory that comes about because of external factors like Hitler's blunders and the weather and doesn't really take into account that, you know, millions of Soviet soldiers were fighting and dying for for their homeland. The German view basically came about because after the war, uh, a lot of German commanders, guys like Guderian, Manstein, uh, Rouse, Blumentritt, they all got started writing their memoirs of the war. Now, there were Soviet memoirs, guys like Zhukov, Rokossovsky, Konev, but, you know, they were written in the Soviet Union, they were heavily censored. People in the West, they recognise that these were overtly propagandistic in nature. The Western ones, like the German ones, had this air of credibility about them, and they kind of very much set the tone for how in the West we've come to understand the battle. Basically what their view was that it was all Hitler's fault. They tended to stress that they kind of were against Hitler in his decision-making. You know, who's going to defend Hitler? He's dead, he's obviously reviled. So basically they gave this form of the story where Hitler was the fool. He was an amateur surrounded by professionals. And you get this image emerging, which kind of came to dominate in the West, of the professional Wehrmacht or the professional German army at odds with the amateur Hitler. And if only he'd listened to his generals, then the Wehrmacht would have won. It's a way of preserving the honour of the Wehrmacht. Think about the Cold War time in which all this has been written. You know, we're making a new friend in West Germany. We do want to kind of push this idea that the Soviets didn't beat the German army. Hitler lost the war and Hitler was a fool, but the German soldier is all right. The German soldier wasn't involved in war crimes. That was this elite Nazi clique. That's the version that came to dominate in the West, at least during the Cold War period. 
So who was Franz Halder and how important was he in shaping this view of history? He's a monumental figure in, if you like, the historiography of this period. So um, he was the chief of the German um, army high command during this period of the war. Importantly, after the war, he was probably the most influential memoirist and former German commander to act as a historian. So in 1949, he published uh, Hitler als Feldherr or Hitler as warlord, and that was translated into English. It was a bit of a bestseller, and it really stressed the idea that Hitler was the fool. Hitler was the the amateur, and if only, you know, the professionals had been listened to, we would have, well, the Germans basically would have been way more successful against the Soviet Union. Importantly as well, after the war, a lot of kind of captured former German commanders, uh, they started getting used by the US military to write and record their history. Initially, this German operational history unit was set up essentially to give the the war from the German perspective in specifically how the Germans and the Americans fought together. As the Cold War kind of emerged, the the Americans realised, oh, hang on, we've got all these former German commanders who fought against the Soviet Union. They can tell us loads about Soviet tactics, Soviet fighting style. It can actually be very useful for us. So it moved more from history to actually almost a military-type operation. Um, How to informally led this, it became known as the Halder Group. Smelser and Davies, two academics who've written about this, said, who knew better how to kill the Russians and the guys who dispatched 30 million of them. So that's basically the way that it's been used. It was a a huge job. At one point it had 12 lieutenant generals, four major generals, nine brigadier generals, nine colonels and four lieutenant colonels all working for them, all writing history from the German perspective on behalf of the Americans. And it very much pushed this idea of the clean Wehrmacht, this idea of the Germans not having necessarily lost the war, but it, you know, defeat being brought on them by things beyond their control. And that is hugely influential in the sources that Western historians later came to use. So the traditional Western view there of Hitler being a mad fool, even a methamphetamine addict by some accounts, is that fact or a myth we bought into post-war or something in between? Hitler rightly is considered one of the worst people in history and reviled. I don't think there's any serious academic who would be defending Hitler the man or the politician or anything like that. In the specific case of the Kiev diversion, the decision to divert his troops south to Kiev instead of pushing for Moscow, it's probably somewhere in between. There's good arguments for the need to actually divert his troops south. If he hadn't diverted troops south and gotten rid of the enormous Soviet force around Kiev and pushed for Moscow, Von Bock's flanks would have been completely exposed. Basically, he would have pushed towards Moscow and those 650,000 Soviets that were taken POW could have attacked him from the south. So it's, it's not quite as clear cut as the traditional view. With regards to him being the, the methamphetamine addict, it's not it's not something I've looked into too too deeply. Um, I know that Guderian makes that claim in in Panzer Leader. Uh, he says he had Parkinson's and he was in, you know increasingly under medication. Although um, just recently I was rereading that and I noticed that in the space of a couple of pages he flipped from Hitler's left arm being the one that's shaking to the right arm being the one that's shaking. I don't know. Perhaps uh, his memory is failing him a bit. And that's a key part of historiography. You're looking at all these accounts, these primary sources, which are by default regarded as they're the best source you can possibly have. But when you take into account those other factors, you've got to take it all with a grain or a teaspoon of salt. That, that's really true. So when a lot of these former commanders were captured, the Americans would secretly record them basically in their room. Uh, at one point, Guderian was talking to Von Leib, who was the most senior officer near him at the time. And he said, should I get involved in this history writing? And Von Lieb said, yes, you, I, I believe you should, but bear in mind that your first task is to preserve the honour of Germany. So it suggests that they knew right from the start that they weren't just about kind of 
telling a story, but, you know, really making sure that the story that they told did have some kind of point. Um, I should point out this Halder group was so influential that Halder in 1961 was awarded the uh, Meritorious Civilian Service Award, which is a very high honour for basically helping out the American government. And it makes him the only commander to have been given a medal by both Hitler and an American president. I think the German account has been long dominant in Western history. As one case in point, I've always called this part of World War II the Eastern Front, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that. But that's actually just Nazi Germany's name for it. What did the Soviets call it? Yeah, that's a really good point you brought up. David Glantz, who's probably one of the most um, eminent uh, academics looking into this period in the current time, he actually says it's ridiculous that we call it the Eastern Front. That's clearly the German term. He avoids using it in his work. The Soviets have always called it the Velikia Otterschist. Venia Voina, or the Great Patriotic War. And they measure the war as essentially having begun on the 22nd of June 1941 and then going through to 1945. Much the same as the Americans tend to say that the war began on the 7th of December 1941 with Pearl Harbor. We go with the 3rd of September when we declared war on Germany rather than perhaps when the Germans invaded Poland. So all these things are quite fluid. But for the Russians, yeah, it's the Great Patriotic War of 1941 to 45. And, and that's very much where they, they focus. So now let's talk through the Soviet view of the Battle of Kiev and Operation Typhoon and how the writing of that history has evolved since the Cold War. First of all, we need to understand that obviously the Soviet Union was a government controlled by the, the Communist Party and historians are actually required to write according to what they call the principle of partynost, which means party-mindedness. So whenever you write, you need to be aware that what you're doing is going to be directly contributing to making the party look good, contributing to giving a, an understanding of history that supports and toes the party line. This was true for, well, I say independent historians, academic historians writing about the war, as well as former commanders, guys like Zhukov or Konov or any of those guys who would have been writing their memoirs after the war. If you had to boil it down, there's essentially three key pillars to the Soviet view of the war. There's the role of the party, the role of the people, and the role of the army. There are fluctuations across time, basically starting with, we'll say, 1945 at the end of the war, going through until Gorbachev starts the process of glasnost or openness and, you know, essentially getting rid of the concept of party nost. Like there's fluctuations, for instance, the role of Stalin, obviously when Stalin was alive, Stalin was seen as the key bringer about of Soviet victory. He was the hero, everybody worked for Stalin, he was beloved. Khrushchev denounced Stalin, so Stalin fades from the story, the histories written under Khrushchev. But the general idea of the, the party you know, the, the, the focus shifts away from Stalin and moves towards the party, but the story remains the same. The Soviet Union was essentially infallible. They won because of the superiority of the Soviet system. They won because Soviet soldiers fought like heroes and Soviet soldiers fought hard. They were well supported by the party and everyone who wasn't fighting behind the front, the people, they were all 100% behind them as well. That's basically the main way of looking at it. Their version is very different from the German version because in their version, they have the agency. They brought about the victory. It wasn't the snow. It wasn't Hitler. That They actually say in their histories that the, the idea that of things like the diversion to Kiev or the weather being a factor is German generals trying to excuse making for their errors and then bourgeois historians coming back and essentially following that German party line because they didn't want to give the Soviets any credit. Their former ally, by the way. And if you don't follow party lines, you're fake news. <laughs> yeah, um, certainly. There's a famous case of um, Alexander Nekrich, who, um, unfortunately for him, he wrote a history just before, or he published history just before Khrushchev kind of had his spectacular downfall. In it, he basically 
said that Stalin was was a terrible leader. He pushed this very kind of very much towed the Khrushchev line. Unfortunately for him, when his book was published, it wasn't long until Khrushchev fell and Nekrich himself was kicked out of the academy. Uh, he was disgraced, all because he was doing basically what he was told, but his timing was awful. Although he did end up being an academic in America and being quite successful, so probably wasn't so bad for him. What I bet many people ask you at this point in the conversation is, what about the Western Front, Tobruk and the Desert War, D-Day, Operation Market Garden, Battle of the Bulge, from endless BBC documentaries, HBO programs and Hollywood films, we are all brought up on how the Western Front was the greatest conflict of our time. What did the Soviets think of the war on the West? They kind of saw it as a bit of a sideshow. You know, you got to remember the Soviet Union lost the most common one you hear now is about 27 million people, 7.8 or 8.7 million of them being military deaths, the rest being civilians. By comparison, we're looking at about 800,000 total for Britain and America combined throughout the war. Just to put that in perspective, for every Britain or American lost in the war, that's 85 Soviet citizens. The Eastern Front cost more lives than the entire European theatre combined. So it's an enormous part of the war. And, and also, they don't just look at it in this kind of morbid blood debt. 75% of all Germans who were killed in the Second World War were killed fighting on the Eastern Front. On the eve of D-Day, 70% of Germany's forces were still tied up on the Eastern Front. The Soviets were responsible for destroying 600 German divisions. The contribution is enormous. So for them, they don't disregard the role of the West. They will mention things like Lend-Lease, but they think that the way that we carry on about our role in the war, they, they think is a little bit a little bit rich. So that was what the Soviets at the time thought. What's the view in Russia today? Sure. Um, so there's been an enormous change basically since Gorbachev came in with Perestroika and Glasnost, these policies that removed a lot of the constraints upon history writing in the Soviet Union. And now, obviously, in the post-Soviet era, there isn't this idea of party nost. So Russian history in the post-Soviet period went through a cataclysmic change. Obviously, you have guys that continue to follow a patriotic line, but you also have what you might call revisionists, people who are doing everything they can to erode that traditional Soviet view, if anything, flip it all in its head and basically say that the Soviet, you know, that Stalin was a terrible commander, the Red Army fought terribly, anything they can do to discredit that Soviet line. It's got a political aspect. By showing how wrong the Soviet version of the war was, you're discrediting the Soviet Union. The, the war in Russia and the Soviet Union was and continues to be an enormous way of um, national identification. Den Pavetti, Victory Day is one of the biggest days on the on the Russian calendar. It was one of the biggest days on the Soviet calendar, especially after Brezhnev. This kind of battle over the war and how it's remembered, it's not just a kind of a matter of academic interest. These guys see it as they're actually fighting almost for their national identity. I'm just going to give you a quote from Zolotarev. Uh, he's a historian who wrote, uh, well, he was the chief editor of a massive kind of state-endorsed history of the Great Patriotic War. Uh, it came out in 2011. It's, you know, had a preface by many Medvedev, the president at the time. So, you know, this is a guess. If you like, it's the, the endorsed view. And he says, the kinds of conclusions we're going to make will determine whether our children and grandchildren have a chance to be born and live in a country called Russia, whether they will read and write in Russian and whether they can make their own choices or whether they will disappear as the Romans did when the German barbarians came, as the Hellenistic Greeks did when the Turks came, whether they will degrade as Native Americans or simply disappear with no trace as the once powerful Scythians and Sarmatians that once lived on our land did. It's quite a powerful quote because he's saying that if they allow the revisionists to win, these guys who do everything they, to denigrate Russia, Russian pride will be so severely affected that Russia will kind of break apart. It will lose its claim to certain parts of uh, Asia or Eastern Europe that kind of came about in the post-war period. It's very full on. It's very, it's a very acrimonious debate. The modern Russian historians 
can be broken down into revisionists. And what Teddy Aldrichs, who's an academic who looks into this, is called the National Patriots. The revisionists, like I said, probably the most famous revisionist argument you'll ever hear is this guy, Victor Rezin, writing under the pseudonym Savorov, published a book called Icebreaker, which basically claims that Hitler's attack on the Soviet Union was a preemptive strike because Stalin was about to invade West. What he's done is basically reframed it by saying that the invasion had to happen in order to save Western civilization. So it's kind of exculpating Hitler a little bit there. It's, it's a little bit, bit off in that regard. Now, it's been largely and roundly debunked by the academic community in both Russia and the West, yet it's still still hanging around. He's still publishing books. There's a lot of, I think, perhaps with the rise of the internet, a lot of you know theories online coming around. But um, that's a good example of the re- revisionist view. It, it flips the traditional story on its head. I mean, that that idea of the preemptive strike has existed since 1941. The, the, the Nazis claim that that's what they were doing in their kind of propaganda. So it's not new, but it's new for it to come out from Russia and it's new for it to come out as a, as a kind of historical thesis. It's been around for 30 years though now. The national patriotic view, they don't deny things that went wrong. They don't deny the enormous failures of 1941. Obviously, they don't deny the German successes. To do so would be foolish, but they don't kind of in the revisionist way, heap all the blame onto Stalin or all the blame onto communism as the the reason for the failure. In the much the same way that Western historians do now, uh, they tend to look at each event on its merits and, and see what they come up with. Uh, as a, I'd say as a general rule, uh, the Western and the Russian view is coming to very rough alignment in that we are moving away from this old fashioned way of viewing the war simply as Hitler invaded, they did well, they got stuck in the mud, stuck in the cold, game over. Instead, people are looking at the wider economic factors. They're looking at the constant Soviet counterattacks, the constant Soviet action, which blunted like a death by a thousand cuts of the German advance, thereby giving much more agency to the Red Army in bringing about its own salvation and you know saving the capital. And that's a very powerful quote you read us earlier. I think it shows the great awareness within Russia today that you need to master the history of yourself, your national identity, for it forms all modern political scene. Yeah, certainly. It's hard for us here to really uh, understand how deeply Russia was affected. The Soviet Union and now modern Russia and, and countries that did form part of the Soviet Union were affected by the war. Basically, every Russian family can claim to have a family member who died in the conflict. So yeah, it's not, it isn't a matter of academic interest. It really does inform how that country understands itself and interprets its history. Russia traditionally and the West are these kind of enemies that seem to be bouncing across. And we get a bit of that today with what's happening between, you know, the West and Putin. The Russians take enormous pride in the Second World War, and rightly so. They claim that essentially they did the lion's share in defeating Nazi Germany. They brought about victory in Europe in the Second World War. So for anyone to attack that legacy is a grave insult. Oh, speaking on legacy, it sounds for all intents and purposes, it's their Gallipoli, but with the greater casualty rate per capita and they're the ones being invaded and it's happening on their own doorstep. Yeah, exactly right. Um, it's murky in terms of the fact that they had invaded Poland in 1939, but a lot of Russian modern historians will, will defend that kind of thing is extending the boundary. Consider how close the Germans got to Moscow. Um, having that little bit of an extra buffer of Eastern Poland was certainly a good thing. But yes, if you break it down to its most simple components, their country was invaded by a foreign Western power. They defended well. They lost a hell of a lot of lives, especially in 1941. But that was on account of the well, supposedly surprise attack. So by the time they stopped reeling from that and were able to halt the Germans just before Moscow and then push them back a bit, the ratio of Soviet soldiers killed and captured to German soldiers killed and captured uh, actually evens out a bit. 
So I'm going to ask you a question that all historians love to answer, and that's a what-if question. If the Nazis only had one front to worry about, the war with the Soviet Union, and they could have focused all their resources there, no distractions on the West or in the desert, how do German odds against the Soviets look now? Could they have won or were they always doomed? So uh, Robert Satino, who's an academic who's written a fair bit about this, he talks about how in, in military history, more than almost any other area of history, what-ifs seem to dominate. He calls it an intellectual parlor game that is incredibly interesting, but utterly pointless. I, I love them. I, I love doing these parlor games. Great. Yeah. Um, look, I really, I don't, I don't think the Germans could have won, even if they were solely focused on the Soviets, simply because of the sheer numbers and the ferocity of the Soviet defense. If you consider the, the fighting at Stalingrad a year after the Battle of Moscow, basically room to room fighting, enormous resources being thrown in, push that a year earlier if they had actually taken Moscow, the battle would have just drawn so many resources. So the, the Soviet, obviously, they were pushed very far back in the initial advance. But even by 1941, they'd moved, you know, millions of tons of industrial factories and output east in order to protect them from, from German advances. They were, by sheer weight of numbers, 190 million Soviet citizens versus the 70 million Germans. Even if the Germans are using kind of all of the, you know, Western or the European military industrial complex, the sheer ability of the Soviet Union to produce industry to field new armies is quite remarkable. Yeah, I, I, I really can't foresee the Germans ever winning that one. So does that make our contribution to the war a sideshow? Does it make it irrelevant? Uh, certainly not. The Soviet part in the war was enormous, but uh, Allied bombing raids on Germany severely hampered the German war effort. Um, as the war in the sea, the, the, the naval war, we provided, well, the, the West, America especially, provided lend-lease aid to the Soviet Union, roughly 10% of their material used throughout the war. So the Allied contribution specifically to the Eastern Front massively shortened that war and thereby saved millions of lives. Something like the Second World War is far too complex to make some kind of claim that it was irrelevant. Certainly there's some Russian historians who might, you know, basically say it was irrelevant, but I, I don't believe so. I do think there is a tendency in the West to focus quite a lot on the Western war, but every country records and writes about its own history and, and that's where the interest lies. But if you had to write a, a history of the Second World War, rightly, the vast majority of that book would be about the Eastern Front. So what should we call those fronts going forward? The Western and the Eastern Front? I tend to use the term the Nazi-Soviet War uh, or the, the war in the Soviet Union, something along those lines. I, try, I do try not to use Eastern Front too much, especially when I'm writing. Similarly, the terminology we use, uh, we need to be very careful with. Quite often you'll hear people talk about the, the Russians during the Second World War. There were lots of Ukrainians fighting in the Red Army who might disagree with being called Russians. So the terminology is, it is a bit charged. Eastern Front, something I'd like to see slowly be removed from the, the Western lexicon. Perhaps we should be calling it the Nazi-Soviet War, something along those lines. Great Patriotic War might be a, a bridge too far. Well, this uh, podcast episode is called The Eastern Front with David Sutton. So if listeners know coming in what it's about, but coming away from this, we should call it something else indeed. Something along those lines. One day. Why is one view of this part of history so much more dominant and widespread than the other today then? The biggest factor is probably the Cold War. We're in the post-Cold War era, obviously, but virtually from the first, the Western view was informed by our former enemy in the war, the German generals, the Halder group. We didn't have access to any Soviet archives. What Soviet sources we did have were official histories or memoirs, which we saw right through. We knew it was propagandistic. We knew that it was towing the party line. In the absence of the Soviet version and with the seemingly credible German version, these are former guys that commanded the German armies. What is that, you know, what, what incredible resource. That view just became so dominant, this idea that it was the mud, it was Hitler's errors, it was the snow. 
that stopped the Red Army just really took root. Some of the most popular histories or the most influential histories written during the Cold War era in the West, The Battle for Moscow by Albert Seaton, for instance, you could read that book and be mistaken for thinking that the Soviet soldiers barely fought. There were outliers and there were some excellent histories. John Erickson immediately springs to mind, incredibly complex. He did so much to try and give the Soviet version of the war. But that did dominate. And I think it was this lack of Soviet sources and seemingly credible German sources. The final reason that it's been so dominant is that it's a very convenient shorthand answer to why the war was fought and won. Why did Hitler fail to take Moscow? Because of the mud. You can fit it in a tweet. Exactly right. Wouldn't we all love to do that? So looking back at this whole historiographical chat we've had today, David, what do you think people can take away from it? Um, I suppose the most important thing is just to understand that the version of history that we inherit the version of history that we tend to focus on. It's almost always contested somewhere else or by someone else. It's very important, if at all possible, to try and understand there are multiple views to any any aspect of history. And something as enormous and complex as the Second World War, it's, it's going to be that many times over. The fact that we can't even agree on when the war started is probably a good place to start thinking about how complex this, this thing is. Exactly right. Well, there you have it, listeners. We always have to think critically and not just take everything we're taught at face value. An important lesson still very relevant more than ever in the socio-political world we find ourselves in today. Thanks for your time today, David. No worries, it was a pleasure. If you like the episode, feel free to get in touch at our email address, podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. We also have Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Life on the Line Podcast. Our website has more information about us, the podcast, our World War II documentary series, and our newly released book, Barney Greatrex by Michael Veach. Find out more at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>